Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, uh, have you ever become so angry or threatened that you've exploded? Like, literally exploded? Mm, no. 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 Okay. But you've seen it before, at least in, in cartoons. I've seen it a lot in cartoons. And because my daughter uh, plays Angry Birds, oh yeah, and especially the Star Wars versions mm-hmm. of it, I'm very aware of one character called Bomb. <laughs> and when enraged, the feather on top of its head will start to smoke. Oh. And then it'll just detonate. Wow. And yeah, it's this glorious explosion. You know, I hadn't really thought about, about video games as much going into this, but I guess there are a lot of exploding characters in games. Um, little bomb men, I seem to recall. And oh, of course, Bomberman. It's all about characters getting blown up, but. But yeah, there's a lot of exploding characters going on in your uh, in your cartoons and your video games. Um, one example that always comes to my mind in uh, John Carpenter's 1986 film Big Trouble in Little China, there's a part when this of this warrior sorcerer uh, named Thunder of the Three Storms, and he discovers that his his evil master Lo Pan has been slain uh, there in the, the the caverns and chambers of his underground uh, uh, stronghold, and so he gets so mad that he just puffs up and just explodes with anger uh, in an attempt, I guess, to, to take out invaders. But it's a, you know, it's a gory, kind of goofy moment, but uh, it's actually a real thing. It is a real thing, right? Because that was a fictional account, mm-hmm. and yet in nature we have some very real instances of this happening, which kind of leads to that whole idea that the truth is truly stranger than fiction. And we've tried in this territory before, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking about sea cucumbers, right? Because we've oh, said yes. that if you ever get in an undersea bar fight with a sea cucumber, beware, because you will probably have its guts pummeling your face because they are ejected from the sea cucumber's anus. And uh, if you were to get in a fight with, uh, say, Harry Frog, the T. robustus, uh-huh. well, then watch out because they can actually make shivs from their <laughs> own bones, which they puncture their way out, those shivs, the bones, out of the frog's toe pads to create these claws. Yeah, I mean, you see it just time and time again. Whatever the, the weird, grotesque, uh, body horror type thing uh, is that we can dream up in our fictional world, in our pop culture... Nature has already evolved it to, an, to a terrifying degree. And, uh, and indeed, that's what we see with autophysis, the biological act by which an animal, specifically an insect, ruptures their own internal glands and organs with enough force to cause their insides to literally burst out through their exoskeletons. It's a, a purely muscular exercise uh, caused by deliberate contractions around engorged tissue. And, and it creates absolute mayhem. Yes. Now, it's worth noting that insects that practice autophosis do so out of something called eusocial organizations. So this kind of organization is predicated on three things. Brood, cooperation, overlapping generations within a colony of adults, and a division of labor into reproductive and non-reproductive groups. And so these set the conditions for this kind of self-sacrifice in the examples that we'll talk about today. All right. Now, before we get into the uh, exploding eurosocial insects, uh, I'm just going to talk qu- quickly here about chemical weapons in uh, in animals, chemical weapons, specifically insects in general. Now, 
number of animals out there use chemical weapons against their adversaries. Uh, and as we've discussed before, a lot of human chemical weapons, also human spices and other agents, are simply nature's chemical weapons that we've hijacked for our own ends. Some animals synthesize toxins, while others extract and modify toxins from their environment or their diet. So... Just looking uh, at insects and arachnids, you know, obviously we have, we have scorpions, we have spiders, we have wasps. But we, then we also have some stranger examples here and there, like foam grasshoppers that excrete foul bubbles from their armpits. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, we always have to mention the bombardier beetle, and this is the one that, heats, that sprays a heated exploding acid from its anus, where it has two, two chemicals that is stored in separate chambers, and it fires them into a reaction chamber. Uh, and then this is where you have enzymes breaking at down H2O2, releasing free oxygen uh, to oxygenate uh, the, the chemicals, and it just creates this explosive, hot uh, excretion, uh, this, this beautiful chemical weapon to spray right in the face of an attacker. When we come, to, it's it's in the social uh, insects, the eurosocial insects. This is where we see uh, the evolution of uh, far more sublime, far more terrifying weaponry. Yeah, because foaming armpits—that's that is pretty great. That's mm-hmm. but that's more of like a fireworks display. Whereas <laughs> the examples of autophosis are more like the the fireworks are the exploding of the oneself, right? Yeah. Offering of oneself as the fireworks display. So let's meet Borneo's Camponotus cylindrical. This is one of several ant species known as the kamikaze ants. And uh, Jonathan Neal, an associate professor of entomology at Purdue University and author of the textbook Living with Insects, writes on his blog that, quote, when exposed to European ants in the lab, the exploding Campanotus ants would grasp the invader by the leg or the antenna, press its body to the head of the invader and squeeze its abdomen until the abdomen ruptured, spilling glue over the eyes and mouth parts of the invader ant. That is just utterly terrifying. Like, I, I think of any grotesque moment in a monster movie that I've seen, mm-hmm. and I don't think anything comes close to that. Uh, like, nothing. And, and I've, I've, I've applied <laughs> some thought to this. Like, that, like nobody yeah. has really... Uh, I mean, horror... Horror filmmakers out there, look look to the the insect world because there's some there's some stuff here that just has not even been plunged. Yeah, it's reminiscent of xenomorphs, or at least some scenes with xenomorphs, mm-hmm. right? Because it's got the gluey kind of uh, aspect to it. But let's discuss what it might be like to have this face full of yellow goo, which which is the actual term, <laughs> the scientific term uh, from the Campanatus, because it is chalk a block with chemical irritants and strong adhesive. So it delivers this kind of one-two punch of chemistry and really stops the invading ants in its tracks, right? Because if your mouth is stuffed full of this glue, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able... And, you're, you know, your your arms and your legs, or rather just legs, are you're not going to be able to do much damage, right? You're going to pretty much freeze in your tracks. Yeah, you've just been completely incapacitated by this noxious concoction. Yeah. Now, the Campanonis, they are pretty touchy. They're known to self-detonate far from the colony. Uh, or when lightly touched with forceps in the lab. Well, light, they're forceps. They're probably right. completely terrifying. Some giant metal ant coming down at yeah, them, right? Yeah, the end times. End times, indeed. And researchers posit that the yellow goo 
initially help the ants break down the microbes and microbial byproducts they fed on, like from fungi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it evolved into this sort of exploding adaptation. And so if you look at the mandibular gland in these ants, which are commonly used for digestive enzymes in most ant species, you will see that it is greatly expanded in Campanatus. And the glands are so large that they actually extend into the abdominal cavity, pretty much filling it. Yeah, I'm reminded a bit of uh, our episode on um, the electric eel, uh, in which you have uh, you have tissue that evolved uh, initially for for one purpose, uh, namely, uh, you know, having to do with uh, communication and sensing. And then, as it becomes weaponized, it just uh, fills up most of the fish. Yeah, and and uh, you know, humans don't necessarily have this. Although you could argue that some people's uh, microbes, gut microbes, contribute to such a stench. <laughs> <laughs> on the other end, mm-hmm. uh, when when releasing flatus, that it could be a defense mechanism. Like, yeah, yeah. And I guess you could also make an, an argument. It's kind of like the um, you have like somebody who's really into karate or something. Mm-hmm. And, like so, their whole life becomes about like just honing their body and their behavior towards this one offensive defensive purpose. It's kind of like what we we see on an evolutionary scale with some of these examples. All right, let's explore termite world here. We are talking about some 4,000 termite species, and they exist on every continent except Antarctica. But scientists have identified only about half of the ones they think that are out there, and most of those species lack common names, and little is really known about their biology or behavior. In fact, several years ago, uh, DNA testing revealed that rather than belonging to their own order, termites should be classified as a cockroach family. Huh. And that's interesting because you, I mean, I, I think most people tend to think of them sort of in the same camp as an ant or at least very similar to the ant, you know, with this uh, social setup, royalty in place, division of labor. Right. Indeed. The, the eusocial uh, organization there. Now, Tracy V. Wilson, you may know her from Stuff You Missed in History Class. She actually has a great article called How Termites Work on HowStuffWorks.com and she describes them Thusly, quote, in a lot of ways, termites are a paradox. They're strong enough to eat a house, but their bodies are soft, delicate, and prone to drying out. Soldiers whose sole job is to defend the colony can't even feed themselves. Adult termites develop wings so they can leave the colony and find a new home, helping the termite population grow. But winged termites are terrible flyers and most don't survive the journey. And yet they do, right? And yeah. and they do so as working as a cooperative unit. And they ensure that their nests are moist so that their bodies don't dry out. They build shelter as protection from the environment, including predators. And as they slowly and methodically carry back bits of waste and dirt to use as building materials, they munch on wood for sustenance. Hence a homeowner's terror at discovering that they've got uh, termites in their midst. Yeah, I, I highly recommend anyone interested in termites to, to read Tracy's article because it's a great How Stuff Works article. And it really, it, I mean, it dives into the complex and, and really beautiful uh, biology of these creatures that we so often uh, are just dismiss as a mere pest. It's just like termites, don't want them, don't want to know about them. But they're really kind of lovely in their own way. I wish they wouldn't eat our houses, but... They're pretty great. Yes, they're lovely, and but they're they're quite formidable. But it turns out that they can uh, actually be pretty spectacular on an individual level as well. Yes, indeed, because we do see termites that practice autothesis. Um, 
Atopsis evolved independently, actually, in, of course, a number of species. And uh, we can actually best fathom the evolutionary process by noting the varying levels of lethality and toxicity uh, in the various examples. Um, according to the journal Nature, some termites simply defecate on their enemies. All right, so it's just a matter of just just poop on anything that's that's uh, a threat to you and the family. But others uh, adapted to shower their enemies with filth by squeezing squeezing their abdominal muscles till the excrement bursts out through thin portions of the abdominal wall. So the the, the next level in pooping on your enemies, right? But the the ultimate in this, the the, the peak of the evolutionary mountain, as we as we thus far uh, can grasp it, is the termite. Neocapitermis terachia. And uh, terachia stands at the forefront of the Atothis uh, arms race. Um, the species here, they grow abdominal sacs of toxic blue crystals uh, grown throughout their lives, and these are the chemical weapons that they use to defend the colony. That's right. They were discovered in 2012 in French Guiana where researchers said, hey, what is that that kind of blue sack there and what is making it blue? And by the way, it is copper-rich proteins that give it that blue hue. And so what the researchers found is that the older the termite, the bigger this kind of backpack or rucksack that they carried on their backs of this uh, blue crystal. And there's a reason for this, by the way, the, the older, the bigger, and we'll get into that. But let's talk about this sac, because these crystals are secreted by specialized glands located on top of the salivary glands. And so during aggressive encounters, the termite ruptures its body wall, releasing the contents of the blue pouch, which mixes with salivary fluid to form uh. a chemical so toxic that it paralyzes or kills most of the invading termites that touch it. So it's it's a, so much more dramatic and effective than just <laughs> pooping on your enemy, right? Because this is kind of like taking a stick of dynamite to a powder keg and saying, hey, take that. Yeah. I mean, they just explode into blue toxic goo. I love it. Yeah. In an interview with Nature, Olaf Ruppel, an evolutionary biologist, says, the sophistication of this is remarkable. We have never seen an external pouch like this before that adds one substance that needs to be mixed with another substance. Now, you use the analogy of, of you know just running out there and touching the touching the fire to the dynamite, an explosive, an explosive and uh, and dangerous task. So, so who do you uh, who do you who do you give this task to, right? Uh, and that's the beauty of this. We mentioned uh, that those uh, the, the the toxic blue crystal um, uh, sacs they grow throughout the, the creature's life. So, by the time the termite is elderly, it has uh, it has reached maximum uh, blue crystal bloat. And at the same time, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's run out of other uses in the colony. Its mandibles are dull and useless. Uh, it's not going to be able to go out there and really get in the fight. It's not really, uh, you know, going to be able to help out much working around the colony. Now it has one purpose, and that is to march out there with its bloated, uh, overfilled sacks of explosive uh, goo materials and to indeed explode. Yes, that's right. And defend the colony, right? With this uh, kind of suicidal rupturing. Yeah, I mean, it's the perfect, uh, you know, we often come back to uh, to just the, the, the inhuman beauty of the insect world, you know, just completely devoid of uh, of, of most of our, our human qualities. Uh, there's a line in uh, from Jeff Goldblum's character in The Fly where he, he talks about the, the absence of, uh, of insect politics. You don't find politics in the insect world. You just find this this 
brutal and, and just beautiful economy uh, uh, at, at play here, where in this case we have these old termites who have no other use uh, but to go out there and explode, and they do it. They do it perfectly to make sure the survival of the the genetic uh, packets are in place, right, for future generations. Yeah, it's all about the greater good of the colony, not the individual. Indeed. Yeah. So um, we're gonna we're gonna just talk about exploding toads a little bit. This is a this is a slight deviation uh, f- from the topic, but it's a, a tantalizing mystery that involves exploding animals. So I think it's it's totally open uh, open game. So. Back in 2005, what you had happen is that you had uh, an exploding toad epidemic in northern Europe. More than a thousand toad corpses uh, were discovered in a, in a pond in an upscale neighborhood of Hamburg, Germany, and over the border in Denmark. Um, so everyone was curious, what's going on? Is there is this some disease of the toads that's causing them to explode? Uh, is someone exploding our toads? What is happening? <laughs> well, Frank Muchmann, a Berlin veterinarian who collected and tested specimens at the Hamburg pond, said that it appeared that clever crows had pecked into the toads with their beaks between the amphibian's chest and the abdominal cavity. And what happened is that the toad puffed itself up as a natural defense mechanism. It, but because these crows had, you know, effectively removed the liver, uh-huh. uh, there was a hole in the toad's body, and the blood vessels and the lungs burst, and then other organs oozed out. Ah, so the, the toad puffs up as a defensive measure, but the crow just reaches in there, gets the the part it wants, yeah, in the nice juicy bit, like a game of operation. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the toad's left there trying to puff up and defend itself, and instead just splurting its insides out through its hole. You know, I'm seeing a future House of Works article, maybe sort of something like the five unexpected fates of toads, because we've also <laughs> talked about, well, we've talked about frogs raining from the sky oh, yeah, yeah. because of water spouts out in the ocean, these sort of tornadoes in the water. Yeah, outside of a scientific understanding uh, of the world and a skeptical approach to, to weird happenings, you would easily think that the toad is like ground zero for the supernatural. Like sure. something weird happens, they're going to rain from the sky, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to swell up and explode. Witches. Witches. Yeah, playing with our toads, as always. Better than our toes. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's, uh, you know, we got a few minutes here. Let's call the robot over then and indeed uh, do a couple of listener mails. All right. This one comes to us from Larry. Uh, Larry says, I was listening to your episode on the weight of the soul, and I just wanted to make a comment. Now, Professor Gary Nam's theory is completely logical if you just have an open mind for a minute. Uh, that takes us to the heart of my comment. It seems that you guys may be letting your views, which seem to be more atheistic and agnostic, uh, get in the way of looking at this logically. Whether or not your soul goes on to anything after this is beside the point. The point being that, that uh, what you call a soul, uh, now don't get it caught, uh, caught up in the name, uh, being a religious reference, is just the collection of energy that makes up life. Now, having that in mind, Professor Nam makes all the sense in the world. Thanks, guys. I love the show, and I will always listen. Uh, indeed, uh, that's, uh, you know, Gary Nam's research I, I did find really fascinating because he, he kind of, again, the difficulty of approaching the idea of the soul and trying to study it or theorize about it scientifically, he uh, you know he over overcomes that to a certain extent, at least in the uh, in, in the, the theoretical uh, phase. And uh, and I do I do buy a lot of what he's uh, putting out there. He kind of loses me the more he gets into into black holes, 
but uh, but I like the general approach. I see it as a brilliant thought experiment. Yeah. Uh, but again, the the problem with it is the problem of science and the metaphysical, which is is very difficult to get actual data, and uh, therein lies the crux of the problem. Exactly. All right, uh, here's another one. This one comes to us from Dave. Dave says, you probably don't have time to reply or maybe even read this in its entirety. Well, well, we're about to prove you wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, nevertheless, I thought I should send you both a message just to let you know how much I love your podcast. I've been an avid podcast listener for a few years now when I stumbled across yours. Until then, I've been listening to SGU and The Reality Check. When I started listening to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, I was impressed with the format of the show and the sharing of science uh, was done in a fun, never-belittling way. I really enjoy the, the rapport between the both of you and look forward to my time so I can listen to a few stuff to blow your mind episodes. I'm currently going through your backlog, and I'm about halfway through, a little more, The Seven Deadlies. Anyway, I just felt uh, com- compelled to drop you this message and let you know that I really enjoy and appreciate the show and wanted to thank you both uh, and everyone else involved for putting together such a great show on a regular basis. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. That's, that's very nice. And uh, Seven Deadlies, one of my favorites. Yeah, that, that was a, a really fun uh, series to do. And uh, yeah, I would really like to uh, yeah, maybe re-explore that material in the future, maybe in video form. Who knows? Yeah. And also, I want to take this opportunity to tip my hat to our producer, Noel Brown, too, who um, puts us together every week and gets this out to you guys. Indeed. We couldn't do it without Noel. Indeed. All right. Hey, in the meantime, uh, you know where to go. Uh, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts. And be sure to check out the landing page for this uh, episode if you want to find uh, links to other uh, great content, including that How Stuff Works article by Tracy Wilson. And if you have exploding thoughts you'd like to share with us, you can do so by emailing us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 